Hello, and welcome to the Big Leads Press Pass Podcast. I am your host, Liam McEwen, and today with us, we have Ethan Strauss from The Athletic and the author of the upcoming book about the Warriors, The Victory Machine, The Making and Unmaking of the Warriors Dynasty. Ethan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. And as always, uh, we'll just start by Ethan. How about you just kind of walk us through your journey through sports media from when you first realized that this is something that you wanted to do to where you are now writing books about the Warriors and covering them for the athletic. Wow. I'm thinking, do I do the short version? Do I do the long version? Um, Okay. (laughs) Longer. Okay. Okay. So I was born in 1980. No. So... (laughs) I just knew I liked writing. I wasn't good at much else. And it was one of the few things that got me some praise when I was in high school and, and, and for other people. So uh, I wrote for the college paper at, at UC Berkeley and uh, I did a myriad of things and I covered the uh, women's water polo team of 2007. I'm sure you read all of my coverage on that. I'm sure that uh, it just burned into the brains of the public. And uh, so I, I, I enjoyed all that. I enjoyed all that, and I, out of college, uh, heard there might be a job in the NBA, mm-hmm. um, in NBA PR specifically. And my job was every day, lived in New York in a bad apartment, and mm-hmm. I woke up at 4 a.m. seven days a week, and I read literally every article that anybody had written about the NBA and sent an email to David Stern uh, where he then decided on who to kill uh, based on <laughs> based on whatever was Uh, said about the league and you could do that back then you could do that that was a time where the internet logging as it was back then um there just wasn't so much and you could read literally every newspaper and read literally everything about the nba and eventually i just came to the conclusion that doing this seven days a week not having much of a social life because you'd have to wake up at 4 a.m to get ahead of the newspapers uh that that wasn't where it was at that some of what these people were doing, um, how they got to go to games, they got to write about games. Mm-hmm. It seemed like a pretty cool job versus PR. And I think I got my first jumping off point. Uh, I, I went to draft night 2009. My job was to uh, escort around whoever, I believe the number five pick was in my memory. Uh, whoever the number five pick was, I was to take that guy. I had a little earpiece in my ear. I had a little suit that I sweated through that didn't exactly fit. And I was supposed to take whoever was selected and just force him to go to interview, to interview, to interview, because there's a car wash situation at the NBA draft at Madison Square Garden. And they were counting on Ricky Rubio going higher, I believe, because the in front of me for the, you know, I think pick number three and number two, there were uh, two women who spoke fluent Spanish. Uh, to my great shame, I do not, even though I'm from San Diego. I don't really speak a word of it and ricky rubio shockingly falls to the timberwolves falls to my pick selection he's this uh scared angsty teenager i'm forcing him through three hours of internal interviews i sit next to him when he has the awkward conversation with glenn taylor and david Kahn of the timberwolves and it feels like being on a bad date where he's rejecting them and insinuating that he's going to stay in europe and I'm forcing this guy not to be able to see his family. And it was just a kind of a terrible, fascinating night. Well, anyway, I wrote it on this blog, Free Darko. Uh, it went viral, uh, such as it were, back in that day. And that kind of got things started. That was the first thing I ever wrote that somebody other than my family would read. Well, that's, uh, 
that's quite a Ricky Rubio story. Never would have expected that coming in. Um, so that yeah. was yeah. <laughs> so that was sort of your launching off point. What happened next for you, Bill? Um, what happened next was I thought, okay, I wrote something that some people read. Uh, maybe I could write more things people read. Now, I quit my job at the NBA. I just couldn't do it anymore. I was miserable. Uh, I, I didn't like seven days a week waking up at 4 a.m. And even though the market had just crashed back then, I said, I want to go back home. I want to go to the Bay. Uh, my friend got this, uh, it rented out this house in Oakland with a couple other buddies uh, for, I don't know, 400 a month. I could, I could just uh, spend whatever I had saved there on rent and live frugally and uh, try to look for work. And so uh, I would just, in that time, as I looked for work, I got a little too invested in the terrible Don Nelson lawyers, and I started, you know, leaving a comment or two on the Golden State of Mind page, the SB Nation page. And uh, one day, the Warriors World blog, uh, the guy who runs it, Rashid Malek, uh, tweeted out, hey, we could use some writers. And I said, hey, you know, I've, I've written a thing or two. Could I do it? And I started just writing about that terrible Warriors team, gaining a bit of an audience. Some people at ESPN noticed, and you just earn trust over time. It's, hey, can you do an article for us? Can you do another one? Can you do another one? You know, here's 100 bucks. Here's 150 And eventually the Warriors started getting good. And I always analogize it to when you open up the pantry and you're hungry. And all, yeah. there's, all there is in the pantry, maybe there's some stale almonds. And you go, okay, and you shrug, and you munch the stale almonds. I feel like I was that for ESPN. I feel like the Warriors <laughs> got big. They looked around. They didn't have any presence in the Bay Area. And here was this kid who had been doing the job capably enough, and when they needed an article, uh, he had been sending an article. And, you know, okay, okay, uh, for fairly affordable rates, uh, put this guy to work, and then the Warriors just took off like a rocket ship, and the rest is history. Stale almonds, huh? <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, well, that worked out. Yeah, exactly. Where does a mark of pride? That's, uh, yeah, that's what, how did you, did you find that there was, was there any transition for you going from blog writing to writing for a more traditional outlet like ESPN? Um, The transition was more showing up, which I was doing. I mean, the Warriors at that time needed any coverage they could possibly get. I mean, it, it seems unfathomable to many people now uh even though it wasn't that long ago but you'd walk into that locker room and there was a tumbleweed blowing across it um you know there was marcus thompson of the bay area news group and there was rusty simmons of the uh, san francisco chronicle and maybe a couple other people but there wasn't really anybody paying attention they were the worst franchise uh maybe in sports and so i had the immense privilege of just showing up and then writing about them and then showing up and i made all sorts of mistakes. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't come up through the traditional way of going through newspapers and covering high school football. And so I did dumb stuff all the time, like trying to take a picture of the uh, plays on the whiteboard. I didn't, I didn't know that that would get you banned for life um, until somebody <laughs> pulled me aside and told me that. I mean, these were mistakes I could make because nobody was paying attention. But mm -hmm. the moment of transition is probably, you know, Keith Smart, who is the coach of the Warriors, at that time, uh, yelling at me. And I, I remember having this feeling of, this is like my TV jumped out, like a guy jumped out of the TV and is yelling at me. It's very surreal. I didn't know that you would have that exchange back and forth. And so 
then you kind of realize that this is a different thing and you're not a fan anymore. Um, so the moments of transition happened, I think, in the lead up to when this became a full time venture for me. I'm lucky enough to have been eased into it like somebody waiting into a jacuzzi. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And what was kind of a, I mean, I guess you didn't really know any better, but what was it like covering a successful team? Well, I guess you did because you covered them when they were really bad and then they suddenly became really good. So just from that reporter's perspective, what was it like just having the Warriors go from not really, you know, being talked about to suddenly being the most successful team in the league and you're right on the front lines? I mean, it was uh, disorienting. I mean, you had that little buildup of Mark Jackson, two playoff seasons, and mm-hmm. Steph Curry becoming a phenomenon. And um, honestly, it was cool. It was cool. I love basketball. And you're not supposed to root for the team. And I have a lot of complicated feelings on the team because you develop relationships where, hey, I like this person. I don't like that person. But I'm trying to be fair to everybody. But ultimately, as a lover of basketball, I love when the Bay Area is in love with basketball. And apparently it was good for business as well. Um, but it was, a, it was a great time. I mean, the, the, the rise uh, is always fun, not knowing where it's going, um, having just a world of possibilities. And uh, there's no real pressure on anybody because the expectations are low. Um, it was fun. And for somebody in, in, in their 20s at that time, um, it, it was a tremendous experience. And that's probably the right age to start being a beat writer. You know, I don't think that being a beat writer is, is easy at all, uh, but it's a lot harder, I think, after that point in time where yeah. you do have to settle down, where you do have roots and responsibilities. But at that point in my life, with the Warriors doing well and there's more and more attention, um, it was cool. Yeah, sounds very cool. And then you ended up at ESPN for a few years, and then you transitioned to the athletic. Kind of how, how did that what, – what led to that decision? Well, I was fired, number one. Um, oh. So there was that. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, nobody quite knows what happened. And least of all me, I mean, people ask me sometimes because there are a lot of rumors. There was a bit of a palace coup that occurred where the guy who hired me, Henry Abbott, um, and, and I were, were fired the same day. And they can say layoffs this or layoffs that, but we had a lot of money left on our contract. Not a lot. I mean, we're not Rockefeller, but like we had uh, years on our contract. And so it wasn't like there was any money to be saved. So at that point, there's a question of, okay, what is this really about? Now, I don't know how I should present it. I wondered a lot since it happened of, uh, is it better to have been laid off or is it better to have been fired? If you're laid off, then there's this sense of, oh, you weren't that valuable to the operation. But if you're fired, there's a sense of maybe this guy's a jerk and, and he earned his comeuppance. So I never really knew how to present it, and I never really knew what exactly went down. I just know that the person who orchestrated the firing uh, then got fired <laughs> subsequently. So um, all sorts of things were happening at ESPN. You had John Skipper being involved in a scandal and stepping down. Um, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of chaos. But uh, I was fortunate enough uh, where because there was time left on my deal, I got to take a break and I got in talks with the Athletic, where a lot of my friends were working. And um, it's the best job I've ever had. Uh, I mean, I had a great experience at ESPN and I forged a lot of relationships, but ESPN you get distracted by a lot. I mean, they're doing so much on so many different platforms. 
there was just this feeling at the athletic of it's not, there's just not, not a lot of bullshit. It's write a good story. Um, try to connect with the reader. And if you're doing that, you're doing a good job. And yes, we're expanding and doing more things, but I always felt like at ESPN, you're just spinning plates. I mean, Charles Barkley jokes about it a lot that you, uh, at night you see Stephen A on the TV and then you wake up in the morning and you see Stephen A on the TV. There's this sense at ESPN because it's such a massive operation um, that you're either completely starving or getting stuff to the point you explode, where if you agree to do TV hits, then you're doing TV hits for all of the sports centers, and that's overlapping with the other things. Then they have their own social media platform that they also wanted to use. And it just, things just keep piling up because nobody's really in charge of making it manageable for any one individual. So um, at a certain point, it just wasn't the best fit in the world. And I think it was a blessing that I was able to uh, get out of it, and I was able to find something else that was fulfilling. Yeah, it certainly sounds like you're uh, thoroughly enjoying your time at the Athletic so far. Yeah, um, it's it's been great, and any job is a job, and it has its you know it has its aspects that you that you don't like. But to me, I mean, most of those aspects are just aspects that are always going to be there. That less has less to do with the institution that I'm with, and um, there's just such a focus on quality, and that can be a challenge. You know, that's not easy, um, but it seems like it's less about chasing whatever the story of the day is and trying to regurgitate that or cycle that and um, generating controversy for its own sake, which I'm not saying is, you know, completely true of uh, certain places, but sometimes. Yeah. But sometimes as, uh, as most big media companies are probably guilty of doing sometimes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, now you're at the athletic and you have your new book coming out, the victory machine. Why don't you just kind of explain to us, what inspired you to write the book in general? Well, I had been approached to write Warriors books in the past, but they were of that hagiographic kind of style that, that teams have of, hooray, they won the championship, uh, they're great. And I think in basketball, the fall is more interesting than the rise. We talk about it more. Maybe that's wrong of us. I think we appreciate the basketball and the rise of it all. But the yeah. fall is so much more interesting because it's like a Greek tragedy. Because in basketball, things end before they should. Shaq and Kobe disband probably before they should. They mm. could have won more championships. They could have. But there was something to the human condition that prevented them from continuing to work together. And that's something that is interesting to people. It, with the Bulls, we're going to see this Bulls documentary. It's the last dance. They said it was the last dance even before it happened. You know, They didn't, they didn't wait around to find out. Krauss broke up the team um, and they they left before they had to. And that's that's interesting. And the breaks of the game, the greatest basketball book ever written by David Halperstam, that's not about the Portland Trailblazers winning the championship. It's what happens afterwards when people grapple with the winning having come and gone. So um, when I saw the writing on the wall that Kevin Durant was on his way out um, and that this thing was coming to an end, uh, that was compelling, and it seemed like it was worth writing about. And it was seemed like something that that wouldn't be dated necessarily. That you, you just it, it lingers, it continues to be interesting in its aftermath, as opposed to all the winning, which for whatever reason we're just not drawn to after the fact. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yeah, it's almost it's it is like Greek tragedy. I think is the best way to describe it. Everybody likes to talk yeah. about that more than the rise, and it's almost 
especially in the NBA, when you look at the examples you listed, it's almost like Bill Belichickian, where teams tend to move on before it's too late instead of moving on after it's too late. And so covering that for the, from the Warriors' perspective, even though it's not really the same thing as, you know, Krause deciding to break up the Bulls, Durant left on his own, it's still, I'm sure, it was probably fascinating, or, right? Or, or, or to be clear about it, they probably don't move on before it's too late but there's something in them as human beings that prevents them from continuing that's more about the personalities than than anything else and there's that question of why doesn't success sustain why did these people who are accomplishing so much why couldn't they have kept it going um i i think that's i think that's what's going along uh, that's what's going on in a lot of these instances yeah, and it's really interesting to almost examine it as like like you said, a human condition, a human psyche thing, as opposed to just kind of, you know, X's and O's, money this, money that. It's not as linear as some people might think. Yes. Um, but obviously writing a book as opposed to writing game stories is a gigantic difference. How did you deal with that process once you started writing the book? Uh, I tried to write it in a different voice. Um, sometimes I'll go a little first person, but for the most part, when you're analyzing a game, um, you're not. And so the book is written first person. Um, and so that gave me this outlet to feel, okay, now I'm in book mode versus I'm in, uh, article mode for the athletic. I didn't want to rob Peter to pay Paul. And I also just tried to write down a lot of what the journey was like, um, and sort of capture, especially that playoff run and just little observations at the arena, uh, the aspects of the NBA show and how it's put on with press conferences and try to get people behind the scenes of the thing. And so developing a different voice uh, allowed me to keep a clearer head than otherwise. But mm-hmm. yeah, it was it was pretty difficult. It was pretty difficult to do both things at once. Uh, I hope I pulled it off. I hope people can enjoy it during these quarantine times. Um, but a lot of it was just, um, was voice differentiation, uh, that allowed me to stay sane and do it. Mm -hmm. And so you just talked about, you know, it was difficult differentiating the voices and that sort of thing, but let's look on optimistic side as we all need right now. What was your favorite part about kind of engaging in this book writing process? Wow. That's a favorite part about engaging in the book writing process. Um, it's an interesting question because writing itself, it feels good in its aftermath, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel joyful necessarily while it's happening. You have these little epiphanies. I, I, there are these moments where you go, oh, that, that puts it in the way that I want it, or that's the thought I wanted to convey. Um, I think that I had those moments. There was moments of reporting, of learning something, of finding something out that I enjoyed, but I don't know. I don't know if I have some sort of moment in my garage that was particularly thrilling. I mean, the experiences themselves, I mean, being at these games, feeling the energy, all the things that go in typically to a season um, that goes a long way. I, I think that that was all there, but I don't, I don't think, I don't think I have like a moment. I don't think I have a moment or anything in particular where I, I said, Oh my God, this was such a, a great process. It's the doing the thing. It's the doing the thing, the feeling of accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Um, and the audiobook. Doing the audiobook was kind of fun in that way because then I was reading the book again and uh, I was literally reading it. And I was going, you know what? This doesn't suck. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> well, that's always a good thought to have. Yeah. To say the least. Um, so with all that in mind, and I like posing this question when I'm interviewing guys who are coming out with books, would you do it again? Yeah. I mean, you, you always want to make different decisions. And with publishing, there's a lag on there's a lag on when you turn it in versus when it comes out. Yeah. And so I have these feelings of, oh, I wish that was in there. You know, Andre Godala was told about my book and its general thesis on how winning uh, doesn't make you happy and whether it was true. Apparently, Andre said, yeah, that is true, but you miss it. And I thought to myself, man, I would have liked to, I would have liked to have known that and, and had that quote in there because that's also it's interesting. You know, I have those moments where I wish I could put something in there. But um, would I do it again? Yeah. I mean, I hope the book does well enough that I can write another book. I, mm -hmm. I'm interested in a lot of people being a world of subculture. And um, even if writing isn't the easiest thing in the world, I think we build up writing a book and it's big and scary and we don't know all that goes into it. But you're often better at something when you do it a second time um, and you have this lay of the land and you know what parts you need to expend effort on. It's almost like it's almost like you're running a marathon or you're running a long race and never never having run it before. So you just don't know you don't know when to run fast. You don't know when to pace yourself. All of these things are things that I didn't know. Um, I hope that I succeeded despite all that. But um, I I would do it again and I would write more books again. Yeah, I think a marathon is a good way to describe it with the just sheer difference as far as the quantity goes. But it is definitely a massive undertaking. And now that it's all said and done, just a little tidbit for our listeners who are looking forward to buying it. And I'll leave the size of the tidbit up to you. What's one of the more surprising things that you learned about the rise and fall of the dynasty while you were writing the book that you didn't already know? Hmm. I think the business aspect. I think the sneaker companies are more of a factor in what happens in the NBA than we typically talk about. Mm. Um, and uh, I think that's in the book. You can get a sense, you can get a sense of it all. You can get a sense of that. These major multinational companies have opinions on what they want to happen. Um, and Nike wants one thing for Kevin Durant and Under Armour wants another thing for Steph Curry and those market forces are in opposition um and you also just get a sense of uh you just get a good sense of the motivations of people and how different they can be and how they deal with loss and how they deal with defeat and how uh, it's all perhaps in ways that you wouldn't necessarily expect um i think the coaches were very stoic about losing in 2016 in a way that the players were not and that might speak to age um, so these are all things that I learned and, uh, but I think the, the, the massive subculture behind basketball, the companies that are involved, the scenes behind the scenes, these are all things that I just kept learning, learning more about. And it's just a, a, a bigger world than I could even imagine, even though I had an inkling. Mm -hmm. It is definitely a very, a lot of moving parts, I think would be an understatement. <laughs> mm. Um, so this the book coming out in uh, about two weeks now is probably the only basketball anybody is going to get for the foreseeable future. So from where you're sitting, you know, nobody has any idea on the timeline of this, but let's suppose the NBA doesn't cancel the season and they do decide to 
do one of the various alternate uh, solutions to holding the rest of the games. A lot of random stuff has been thrown out there, like Jay Williams talking about the cruise ship idea, the biosphere in Vegas, all that stuff. What do you see as the most realistic scenario for the NBA to continue playing basketball if it's deemed safe enough anytime soon? Um, the Vegas idea intrigues me. Uh, a lot of things would have to go right. Um, so I don't know what odds I would put on it, but that's an intriguing idea. I know that Toronto just announced that there are going to be no public events uh, through June 30th. So if you do the math there, uh, that means probably no NBA in the traditional way we have NBA until at least July um, mm -hmm. because Toronto is in the playoffs or the defending champs. And I know people say, oh, you could have empty stadium games. Um, you need a gathering of people to do that. It's not, I think there's this thing fans think that like there's just a camera well and it moves around and a few drones and that captures the game. And it, it's almost like if you watch Friends and you can delude yourself into thinking that, oh yeah, the only people on that show are, uh, you know, Ross, Rachel, Joey, Phoebe, you know, it's like, no, there's this massive infrastructure behind and then you pan out and there's a set, there's set designers. And I mean, there are a lot of people involved, so it'd be hard to see that happening. Um, the Vegas idea is intriguing. I'm not going to dismiss it just because I know that there are, there are people with serious ambitions who can make unexpected things happen. But the thing that needs to be remembered is that they're only so much in control. You know, these owners have a lot of speak it into existence, LeVar Ball mentality. And it's worked out in their lives, so they have that attitude of, okay, you know, we'll have it in May, and then we'll do this, and we'll do that. Uh, the virus isn't necessarily taking orders from them. Uh, it's going to do what it's going to do. And the NBA isn't necessarily controlling everything that's going to happen in the NBA. The state officials and the feds, uh, they have authority on that. When I saw people praising the NBA for getting out ahead of it and canceling the season, I laughed because the season was over. Like when Rudy Gobert tested positive for coronavirus after city officials in San Francisco and D.C. were telling the NBA to shut down, it's done. The cities yeah. are going to shut you down. The feds are going to shut you down. It's not a matter of choice. So, yeah, you could have these plans. You could do the Vegas tournament potentially with all the complications. And if there's an outbreak in a major American city, that's probably it. And so that's all I'm saying. I'm not saying I can predict what's going to happen. I'm just saying that uh, just having a lot of intention and having a lot of plans, uh, it all sounds good and you should have plans, but we're not necessarily in control of what happens next. No, absolutely not. But before all that happened, the Warriors were in the midst of their worst season in quite some time after Steph Curry broke his hand only a few games into the season. But on the bright side, for Warriors fans who struggled through all of those blowout losses, there were a couple of youngsters who really did show up to play and played every night and looked like they could be pretty decent rotational pieces at least going into next year when they when uh, all the stars are fully healthy. Any names in particular pop into mind when you think about guys who might have played, uh, played their way into some serious minutes next year? Uh, I think Eric Paschal. Um, what's difficult is that he doesn't seem to play well alongside Draymond. Uh, Draymond Green, so maybe there'll be a six-man role for him, but he's certainly impressed uh, for a second-round pick. Um, I think he had a very good rookie season, and there's a place for him in the league. I think Damian Lee showed that he's an NBA rotation player and somebody who can help them going forward. I think he'll be even better when they finally get players back to flank him, uh, to flank him like he's the star, but you know what I mean. 
Um, and so I think those two guys, uh, those two guys were really impressive. And uh, maybe Marquise Chris uh, cars out a role, but yeah, a lot of it's going to be determined by the uh, by Steph and Clay returning. Um, Wiggins, who even knows? We'll see if the presence of those other players unlocks something in his game. And then there's the draft pick if they keep it. And all of this, of course, is contingent on the NBA coming back eventually. But you should at least be able to depend on the draft in theory. So um, I think that there are reasons to be hopeful, but they're just not going to be – I don't think they're going to be anybody's title favorite anytime soon. That's just the reality. Mm. And you just mentioned the draft pick. The Warriors were the only team eliminated from playoff contention before the season was postponed and what I'm sure was a wonderful bit of Freud for the other fans in the NBA. Um, but they could do a variety of things with that pick. Let's say they keep it. Who do you, let's say they keep it and it ends up top three. They finish with one of the worst records in the NBA. Lottery is nice to them. They end up with a third overall pick, we'll say. What prospects do you think they would eye to add, try to add to their core and keep the, keep the prime and the championship window open? Um, it's a tough one because it's a fairly wingless draft and the Warriors need some wings. And so I could see uh, I could see Okoro perhaps because he's maybe the top wing draft pick and uh, he can pass a little bit and defensively he's really good. Now his shot, there's concern there, but I could see them wanting Okoro for that reason. Um, I have my own favorite prospects. I like uh, Killian Hayes out of France who plays for a German team. Uh, I like what I've seen out of him, um, but I don't know if they want somebody who plays as on the ball as he does, or that's Steve Kerr's style, but that's a prospect I would certainly watch. And then James Wiseman is getting a lot of hype as uh, the pick with the highest floor because he's a super athletic big man. Um, the question is, are we in an era where you want to draft a center top five? I don't know if we are, uh, but those are some of the, uh, the main names you hear. And of course, Anthony Edwards is being rumored as a top pick. Um, I don't know if he's necessarily a great fit for the Warriors, but that's that's a guy who gets a lot of buzz for being a number one pick as well. Yeah, it'll be uh, fascinating to see how all that develops, if it develops in the time frame that everybody's hoping, but all we can do is cross our fingers for that. Now, for the last part of the interview here, we're just going to do some quick hitter questions. How does that sound? Sure. Where, or sorry, what is your favorite NBA arena that you visited? Oh, I love the uh, the Fieldhouse in Indiana. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful arena. Um, and yeah, just basketball arenas that are distinct and built specifically for basketball. Uh, those tend to work. Uh, those tend to work out best. And um, my favorite experience going to an arena is probably uh, Chesapeake Bay, just because the media sits courtside and the crowd is incredible. Um, but yeah, for the actual, I'm assessing it. If I were a fan, it would probably be Indiana. Yeah. A house built for basketball in the state for basketball. Can't imagine it goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your yeah. favorite place to eat in the Bay Area? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think Bilotti is uh, Bilotti on college is the best Italian place in the East Bay. I won't say beyond the East Bay because I can't claim to know uh, about the rest of the areas of the Bay Area, but that's my favorite. Uh, they do pasta spectacularly. Uh, the Agnolotti. Uh, in the beef reduction uh, is one of my favorite dishes. And so uh, that's that, 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 that one right there um, is, is top of the line, top of the line to me. And I, I have other ones, of course, other cuisines, but that's the one that's been getting a lot of play recently in the, when we want to spend a little on takeout. 
Mm-hmm. All right. Got that on the list next time I'm in town. Uh, who has been, and this could be from your experience writing the book, or it could just be from any point in your career, who has been the favorite person that you've ever interviewed? Um, Andre Iguodala, uh, he, he is maddening at times. Uh, he trolls. He can be a jerk, but he's a smart jerk, and mm-hmm. he's an interesting jerk. And uh, I miss having him around to just get get, get his cryptic perspective on things. Um, I think he was like in the end, he was my favorite person to interview. Okay, that's interesting. Um, what's something about this job that you wish you knew back when you were getting started out? Uh, just not to care too much about Twitter, not to have arguments with people. It, it just doesn't serve much of a purpose. The people who follow you, they really don't care. You just look, you just look narcissistic and insecure and the people, nobody's reading your mentions. Nobody sees what people are saying to you. There's just no reason to engage in it. I wish I knew that earlier. It gives me more peace now that I know it. I imagine it gives you significantly more peace. (laughs) Those, those people are relentless. And then finally, what's something about your job that you feel like other people don't know or don't really understand? Oh, I mean, there's a lot. Uh, just as true in any job. Um, I, I think it's just that a lot of your you know, the annoying aspect of it is managing people's feelings in the aftermath of doing a story is a significant part of the job that you do the story and then an agent is mad at you or a coach is mad at you or a player is mad at you that somebody's always mad at you afterwards and you're always trying to uh, settle things and mend fences in, in the aftermath of it all. Maybe that's something fans would think happens, um, but that is, that, is certainly, uh, that is certainly an aspect. And I think it's also, uh, this is less so true for me now, um, but for beat writers who are on the road all the time, and that's not my job anymore, um, just the degree to which it physically fatigues somebody and scrambles their brain, I think would surprise a lot of people. Um, and I think that has to do with a lot of factors, the NBA has an insane schedule. Uh, there are a lot of back-to-backs, and a lot of its cities are just so culturally different from one another that your brain can be completely warped. You know, I remember my brain was spinning after a five-game in seven-night road trip that went L.A. to Salt Lake City to Memphis to Minneapolis, where it was zero degrees, finishing up in New Orleans, where it was 80 degrees. And my, my head was spinning as much from the culture shock and the temperature shock as from anything else. So I think if somebody could just go through it and feel it, they would get a sense of it and just realize how crazy it is. Yeah, sounds like that would be a very discombobulating experience for sure. Yeah. All right, Ethan, that will conclude the interview. Thanks again for uh, agreeing to come on the podcast. I really appreciate your insightful and honest answers. Thanks so much for having me. Of course, of course. And thank you, listener, as always, for tuning in. Make sure to keep an eye out for the release of the Victory Machine coming in a couple weeks. I am your host, Lee McEwen, signing off.